0: Hello and welcome to the podcast How Did You End Up Here. I'm Jamie Hay and I'm talking to people in interesting jobs and finding out what path they took to get there. This week is part one of my chat with Professor Nick Higgins. Nick takes us from his early days as a sporty child in Glasgow through to using his films to start conversations in academia. Nick Higgins, thank you very much for giving us some time today. Um, Can you just start by giving me your current job title?
1: So I am a Professor of Media Practice here at the University of West of Scotland, but I'm also the Director of the Creative Media Academy. Um, UWS was one of only three uh, media academies in Scotland, the other two being Edinburgh Napier and Abertay. They got accredited by Creative Skillset in 2011-12, and I came here in 2013. and My job, pretty much, um, was to... Increase the profile of the academy, status, and the courses that we do. So I spend quite a lot of time externally facing, making contacts with industry. I represent the academy and the school on a number of external boards. I sit on the board of Independent Producer Scotland. I used to sit on the National Board of Creative Skillset. I sit on the Creative Media Network board and the executive for the Scottish Graduate School for Arts and Humanities. So, so a good part of my job is about external relations and trying to um, let our, make sure UWS and the Media Academy has a stake in, in quite a few of these um, areas. And some of it you can sort of see, we have the STV partnership here, which is local television um, based on campus. Um, some other things are less visible, but, the, but they're perhaps more lobbying, making sure that funding continues coming through for media courses in Scotland in higher education. And, you know, most people will be completely unaware at times when actually that is in some jeopardy. So some mm-hmm. of that is just sort of fighting for that, which is sector wide. It's not just for UWS, it's for all those courses. But media is still a relatively new area within academia. And it's still, I mean, it's it, it's practiced by the colleges as well, but it's not always looked upon um, as being, you know, worthy of of sort of in investment. So I have that external role, and internally, in my day to day, I sometimes teach an undergraduate filmmaking courses in documentary, in fiction as well, actually. And I'm the program director for the masters in filmmaking that we launched last year, and this is its first year.
0: And you obviously have quite a background which we'll obviously get to in sort of filmmaking and academia as a whole so you perhaps combining a lot of things that you've done in your life and your career into this can, can sort of feeds into the role you've got at the moment would that be fair
1: yes i mean i think it's true i mean my background um in some ways is a, f- a fairly traditional academic background insofar so far as i studied an undergraduate degree then went on to do a phd And from doing a PhD, I then started to teach as a lecturer, a part-time lecturer at Glasgow University. But then I started to become interested in making films, making documentaries. And then I moved to Glasgow School of Art, where I taught there, and I was making documentaries whilst I was at Glasgow School of Art. Um, I'd started, actually, at Glasgow University as well. And then when I went to Edinburgh, I I combined those two things by being a programme director of um, um, Masters in Cultural Studies and then set up... Uh, masters in media culture and practice which really was the combination of my academic background in political cultural theory plus the filmmaking aspect and at that point we also set up well I also set up a PhD in what we call transdisciplinary documentary practice um, which was for people to do PhDs but explore it through the methodology of making documentary films plus writing a thesis So um, that was probably the two worlds coming together in the strongest sort of way. Coming here is a bit more of a move towards the industry side of it in some senses. I don't have many opportunities here to (laughs) make use of all my kind of reading and and writing. I mean, I've published two books and about eight sort of journal kind of articles. Um, Rarely do I get called upon, but we are a far more vocational institution in that regard. And to be honest, whilst I am, being one myself, a fan of um, what a traditional humanities degree can provide as a background for filmmakers, I'm also sceptical what a lot of the theory, particular, (laughs) I should be careful here, but particular film studies uh, actually teaches people in terms of becoming good filmmakers. Um, and, uh, And so the masters we have is... I don't want to say practical, it's practice-based. I believe people can learn through doing. That's that's the principle of it. And so I, I've, I've moved slightly more towards that direction in terms of the style of teaching, um, which wasn't, you know, the, the teaching at Edinburgh was far more a mix of um, reading, writing plus practice.
0: So if we track back um, to your early years, you're from Glasgow. Um, you know, when you were... You know, ten, eleven, twelve, 12, people said, Nick, what do you want to do when you grow up? And what was what was your interest and, and what what answer did you give them?
1: I mean, to be honest, I can't really remember too clearly, but at ten eleven I was a bit of a wee lunatic with a lot of energy. So mm. I ran around a lot. I, I think I was already doing a bit of skiing actually at that point. I was playing football, I was playing rugby, I was quite sporty. And um, I probably thought I'd do something sporty, to be honest, at that age, mm-hmm. maybe like a lot of wee boys. I don't think I dreamed of being a f- footballer particularly, but I, I think I probably dreamed of some sort of um, heroism on, on the track or, right. the, or, or the, Olymp- field, the Olympics. which of course clearly has not come true. But, I, but, but as I grew older, that sort of um, kind of uh, tapered off anyway.
0: And did you, when you went on and you're in school, your secondary school, you're choosing subjects, did you choose, was there any subjects you were more interested in than others, like art and music and that sort of thing, or English?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, um, the sciences didn't sit very well with me. I quite liked the opportunity to make things blow up in physics, um, (laughs) or maybe they weren't meant to blow up. Deliberately? I made them grow up and blow up and, um, you know, obviously we all need to know the basics of biology, but... um, but no the sciences weren't my bag uh, but I did like English. English was probably my favourite subject and I used to really like writing essays and I did well in English. I got a higher A for English. Um, so I definitely knew that I was on that side mm. of, of, of things. Yeah.
0: And when you're sort of finishing fifth and sixth year you got hires you went straight to university, um, St Andrews University. What what was your thoughts? What, what did you study? What other options might you have had? And, and you know, what kind of came on your thinking at that point?
1: So I went to St Andrews. Originally, I went to St Andrews to study, um, I think it was international relations and economics. I did well at economics at school as well. I, I liked it as a subject too, which is quite producery, I think, actually. Um... But then I, uh, you could switch. The great thing about Scottish kind of arts degrees is you have, once you're in and you're in the sort of um, the humanities, we, I think we had, I think it was like four weeks within which you could switch. Mm-hmm. And I very quickly decided that there were more interesting subjects, subjects that you just don't get at school. Mm-hmm. So I switched to social anthropology. And so I was doing international relations and social anthropology and philosophy. And so you do more subjects for your first and second year and then you choose your honours. And then I ended up doing honours in philosophy and international relations. Um, I mean, I had a great time at university. Uh, I mean, I found some of my tutors to be incredibly stimulating individuals. I found it pretty hard work. I think I wasn't a great student when I was in the first couple of years because there were lots of distractions, which are all part of university, but not Mm -hmm. a lot to do with the coursework. But I did work in my, I mean, there was a point within my honours year in the third year where I um, really started to take it seriously and sort of worked properly. And, and it was at that point that I actually thought, okay, academia is something that I'm genuinely interested in and I might even, you know, be good enough to, to do that.
0: And so when you once you've when you graduated, did you have any other jobs? Was there any other... Uh, well, as you're through your university like do you have any other kind of jobs that fed into what you've become or um
1: Well no the move the, the move for me, even though I did um international relations and philosophy as a whilst at St Andrews my masters thesis um took me to East Africa and mm-hmm. so I was a fan of doing fieldwork mm-hmm. and I tried to introduce basically social anthropology fieldwork within international relations which was something that wasn't really being done but there were certain academics who were writing about it and saying they thought it should be done and and one of them was also one of my tutors there a woman called Vivian Jabri who's now a professor at King's and uh, and so I went to East Africa and spent three months in Ethiopia in Eritrea and wrote a thesis on food aid as a weapon of war and um and that was a fascinating sort of um period for me you mm-hmm. know uh and that and that's i think where the documentary aspect starts to come in mm-hmm. because at that point i was recording interviews on dictaphones and i was taking some photographs and you know and i was trying to figure out what was going on and um and from writing that up i then um and this is a true story i was trying to write up my master's thesis and i was doing it over New Year, and I I would, I had not gone out for New Year. I was taking it that sort of seriously, mm-hmm. uh, and I was literally sitting in um, my room listening to the radio whilst writing away, and a news programme came up about a rebellion in southern Mexico um, called the, the Zapatista Rebellion in Chiapas, uh, which happened on New Year's Eve in 1994. And when I heard that story... Um, it really uh, struck me because I had been to Chiapas as a student during mm. my, my holidays and travelled around that area and I'd read quite a lot of material on the Maya and I thought, I, I arrogantly thought I actually knew something about mm. the Maya as you do when you're, you know, sort of 20 and <laughs> and full of it. But the, but the, the, the news report made me realise that I knew nothing and it made me realise that there was a whole, that I'd probably been among some of those Indians, those indigenous people, and they'd been rebels at that point. Mm-hmm. It's just that they'd been hiding it, and they'd chosen to wait till the first of you know January nineteen ninety four before before they pulled their balaclavas on. Mm-hmm. And that sort of triggered something in me where I thought I'd really like to go back and learn more about how that's possible, how people can sort of be so, or a movement can be so seemingly invisible, and then um, but so wide scale because. They had about 200,000 odd people supporting them, which mm-hmm. is no minor thing to keep yeah. hidden. Um, so that was, and then I put in an application to do a PhD to work with one of these individuals who believed in doing fieldwork a guy called um, Stephen Chan, who's a professor now at SOAS. Um, and that's uh, how I ended up going to the University of Kent in Canterbury.
0: Quite heavy subjects to, to take on when you're 20, 21. Or did you just sort of embrace it when you're in Africa? Do you just embrace what you were doing and just take it in your stride, or you know, you thinking, This is this is pretty you know, obviously it's quite important what you're doing and um you know, did you feel you're a long way from home and that kind of thing, or do you just think, ah, this is this is life and I'm just gonna embrace it?
1: So that that's all to do with St Andrews, really, and probably what attracted me to St Andrews in the first instance. It was so international. That a lot of the my fellow students um, came from these places. Mm-hmm. They came from Africa or they came from the Middle East, and so they were kind of everyday realities to them. Um, I mean, admittedly, you know, they come from certain backgrounds, and they're generally people mm-hmm. who are in, in positions of some influence in those sorts of countries. Now, I wouldn't. I didn't have that when I was at school. And I didn't have that when I initially left school. Mm-hmm. But but through that education at St Andrews. That somehow seemed normal to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, the majority of my friends were going to quite seemingly exotic type places to Mm -hmm. do their fieldwork. And so I was just doing the same as other people were doing. I mean, I admit, I didn't really know what that meant until I was (laughs) there and found myself in certain situations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, but that's a that's a kind of brilliant education. And, you know, lucky for me, I suppose, you know, nothing particularly sort of serious kind of. Happened. Um, But I did, yeah, I I did go seeking out in the way that some people do, I think, when you're that age as well. You know, these were, it was a post conflict zone, but when I went to Ethiopia and Eritrea, the the war had literally only ended about a month before. Mm. The the buildings were all bombed out. The government ministers had been literally fighting about a month before um, and were still wearing military uniforms. And I was able to get access to these people, and I found that it was only me and journalists. And I found that all quite exciting, um, and and yeah, I suppose just a very different sort of um, reality from from back at home in Glasgow.
0: You mentioned your PhD, and that was inspired by what was happening in Mexico, and your own. You've gone to Kent, so how, did you spend a lot of time there? Or are you travelling out to Mexico, and how how does what's the kind of?
1: So I got a, a place at Kent, studied Stephen Chan, and. Um, Then I set about, I didn't have um, uh, a scholarship, so I I was chasing funding to do my PhD. And uh, I was lucky enough to win a Leverhulme Trust scholarship, which is quite a prestigious scholarship, which was specifically for people who wanted to go abroad as part of their PhD. And that allowed me to have 18 months to do fieldwork in Mexico. So I left Kent in about 1997, I think it was, and then spent a year and a half living in Mexico, which was, I was a visiting fellow at the Colegio de Mexico in Mexico City, but also in a smaller unit which was part of um, a university in in Chiapas. And I would go from Mexico City down to what's the conflict zone. And that was, you know, a a kind of, even though it was a peace deal. still what they call low-level conflict zone, and I would travel down and spend maybe a month within the zone and then come back and write up and then go down. And it was during that period with the community that I was working with that the, the massacre in a community called Actial took place, which was in December 1997. And I actually went back and interviewed the survivors from that massacre Um I mean, not long after it, a couple of weeks after the massacre itself. And I went partly because at that time I had this research visa that allowed me to get through military roadblocks. And that made me quite an unusual person down there, being a white or rather a red (laughs) international Scottish person um, when they really didn't want a lot of observers there. So I started doing some human rights observation for an organisation there. And um, and when I interviewed these people, it, it became something a, a very small part of my PhD thesis that I always felt was unfinished business, and that's what led me to go back laterally and make a, a documentary about the Atahualpa massacre.
0: Um, how, do you have safety concerns when you're in Mexico, and uh, at that time, and especially when there's a conflict on, or did you just? I
1: mean. Yes. I mean, I would say I'm congenitally a a coward, to be honest, so I'm um, not really seeking out um, situations where where I'm in danger. But at the same time, um, these communities, whenever I would go and visit them, they would always want to send me um, to the next community where things were um, more tense, Mm -hmm. because my presence as an international white guy, and probably not just a, a white guy but a, an academic with the de Mexico Leverhulm Scholarship you know from the UK gave them actually quite a lot of um, protection mm-hmm. if something happened whilst I was there that was a new story yeah. and so people uh, would welcome me in in that sense and whilst I wasn't trying to be brave I did understand what I could bring to those communities just by my presence mm-hmm. And it was a trade, you know because they were telling me about what was going on and I was learning, and that did become part of my my thesis um but i didn't I didn't go seeking it out um there were incidences where you know I was concerned for my safety, and there were times where the human rights agency would send somebody else with me mm-hmm. um but on the whole um I think i um yeah on the on the whole it was fine
0: you spent a year and a half there you said. What did you do when you came back? Where did you where did you come back to, and what what happened next?
1: So I came back, wrote up the thesis. Um, I came back to Scotland. I came back to Scotland for personal reasons. My my father died, and my mother was on her own. So I came back for that reason to look after my mum. Um, but I was, uh, and I and I, I doubt I would have come back otherwise I was thinking about going back to Mexico to be honest I had a lot of friends there and um, I was still fascinated by the the zapatistas even though the PhD was was pretty much over um, but I started to teach at the at Glasgow University at first I started doing just tutorials for the Mexican politics course with a, a, it was run by a guy called David Stansfield there and there's not many places in the UK to be honest that study uh, Mexican politics so mm-hmm. that was a, a good fit and then they took me on to do more teaching so I had like a sort of half time 0.5 or point six position there and I taught on their globalisation seminar but I did have a kind of frustration and I was I was doing the traditional academic things, I was going to conferences, I was presenting my work, um, my PhD was um published by the University of Texas Press and so you know I was sort of on my way to having a, a career within politics I would say. Um, or international relations. But this frustration, I sort of felt a lot of the experiences I'd had that were the most intense experiences during this period of fieldwork, in particular around um, the the incident at Actial, um, I just felt weren't really being communicated through my writing. Mm -hmm. And so then I started to think about going back with a camera and I made an application to um, the British Academy and um I think it was the Joseph Roundtree Trust as well. Anyway, I got money and I got a Sony P D one fifty, which you may remember, a great wee camera. Mm-hmm. And I um I I took some short courses here in Glasgow at GMAC, um, Glasgow Media Access Centre, which is a brilliant facility, you know, for people who know nothing but just want to figure out how to use kit. And then I headed back out there to make a film about um Actial. Um I screened that film only once. It was 25 minutes long. I edited it myself. And there were so many questions from the audience mm-hmm. that I realised the film hadn't communicated all the things I thought it would okay. have communicated. Yeah. And then at that point, I thought, OK, maybe there's more to this filmmaking <laughs> malarkey. And I realised I had a very literal understanding of it then. I just kind of thought, I'll go out and point a camera at people and I'll get what I need. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, right, I really need to learn how to make films. And... Um, I was lucky enough and I started looking around for, for what I thought might be good ways to learn and um, and I got on a programme called Eurodoc um, which is a development programme in, in Europe run by um, uh, what's now Creative Europe, it was media then. And uh, and that's that was really my sort of the start of what I would consider my proper kind of formal education about what documentary filmmaking was. And it was great because it was european it was about co-production it was about uh, authored filmmaking and at that point i was um, keen really to get um, uh, films made about the subjects i was interested in but i didn't have a strong idea about me being a director mm-hmm. i just wanted the films to, they weren't on television and really at that time i was thinking i'd like the things i'm interested yeah, yeah. to be on television mm-hmm. and that was the main motivation but they they challenged me and said, look, we think you have to make them. Mm-hmm. And that was actually quite a scary proposition at that time because I, I'd i only made this sort of well, at that point I was then able to recognise as a pretty shoddy kind of short doc. Um, but, you know, five years later I did mm-hmm. make the film by Actial and we won the Best Human Rights Award and we premiered at the Edinburgh Film Festival with a small cinema release and it played in, you know, 30 plus festivals internationally and it's Got distribution in Europe and um, and the US. That was the
0: film A Massacre Foretold, a Massacre foretold that, yeah. which came, so that came out in two thousand and eight. And the reason they wanted you to film it, I guess, is because no, nobody was. It needed someone that was really invested in it, and um, you know you you know knew the story, and it, maybe it was h- harder to communicate that to a third you know a third party to come in and direct that sort of thing. Or do you think that'd be why or? You'd, well, I think you'd to put so much work into the background.
1: Yeah, so I mean, I knew all about it. I had mm-hmm. the contacts and i I had you know access as well, classic thing in in documentary. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they knew better than I that what would be lost if I handed it over to somebody else mm-hmm. um, because I did have uh, uh, some meetings and a conversation with a really great documentary director. Um, a guy called Peter Chapman, Um, and he was very kind and very generous, and he too sort of said, you know what, Nick, you know, I really think you should do this kind of your, yourself they sort of realized that and I think it was partly also because there's things that you can't quite communicate but that you know are right at that point I'm much better at communicating them now mm-hmm. but at that point I, I didn't really realize how many things you have to make explicit and verbalize I mean I now teach this to sort of students
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know you literally have to tell people what it is you're seeing in your mind's eye yeah, yeah. and not take it for granted that they will understand what you're thinking mm-hmm. And I and I think they just recognised there were lots of things I just wasn't quite getting out, and therefore I'd be better off directing somebody else or shooting myself. And I and I did shoot large parts of that myself. Um, so yeah, I think they. were... But I I never I'm not I'm not sure I would have been given the chance either by lots of other people if I'd come a more traditional route. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone would give me the chance because. Um, I had no track record as a director. I hadn't made anything. Mm-hmm. But then I, I basically went back and um, to Scotland after that and uh, I applied... Well, I went to work with a producer called Leslie Hills, who's a great producer um a company called Skyline, um, and I asked her to come on board for a project. Um, I started applying for everything, and there was a scheme called This Scotland, and I put in an application to that, and I was successful with that on my own, in fact. And then I asked Leslie if she would produce it and so my my first film ostensibly was a, a TV production for STV, a half hour doc, or mm-hmm. what we call Scottish half hour, twenty five minutes, and that was great. And I worked with a professional crew, and I learned so much from doing that. Um, and then I made another film. After that, I set up my own production company. So I started, I, I sort of. I do think I'm quite a quick learner. I sort of thought, OK, I know what's involved here. Um, and uh, I, I hired people, myself, DOPs, location sound recorders, editors, the whole thing. And I did a European co-production for my second film, which was Hidden Gifts, uh, The Mystery of Angus McPhee. And that, was, and that model is very interesting because that's a model whereby you reduce the risk for any one broadcaster by only asking them for a small amount of money. Mm-hmm. And I was able, even with very, very limited track record, to go to STV and say I'm only looking for, you know, I mean, I think it was only like £4,000 from them and I could provide all the rest of the budget from Finnish TV, Swedish TV, Dutch TV, you know, more partners than you would imagine for a small film, I think with five broadcasters and that. And that was a small risk for everyone mm-hmm. and that film did really well it got an rts nomination for stv we got a nomination for the pre-italia pre-europa and um we won um an award in berlin and um, in the brit spotting sidebar and uh, got a um, mental health festival award as well and that film actually is probably the film i continually sell or the production company does um and it's and it's in distribution in the US as well DVDs of that on a on a monthly basis right. and that's fourteen years ago
0: right and so you, did you have an interest in documentary like prior to being just you know as an observer as someone like to what did you like to watch them or was it something that's just come along that's developed as you've sort of got interest in subjects and started to make them yourself you know when you know when you were twenty at St Andrews was there documentaries that you would watched and. That no. had an effect on you, anything influenced you in that sort of Not really. World? I,
1: did, I did do film philosophy, so um, film studies didn't even exist at St Andrews at that point. Mm-hmm. But there was a guy called Barry Gout who did a brilliant course in film philosophy, and we watched, you know, amazing films, you know, silent films. It was a real sort of history of cinema, but um, seen through a philosophical lens. And that and that asked a question about what cinema did and could do to an audience, how it could affect them, how it could make you cry. I mean, basically, basically, emotionally move you. Mm-hmm. And I think I did carry that notion through um, to when I was writing up my sort of fieldwork that that emotion didn't seem to have a place in academic writing, but it could have a place in filmmaking. Mm-hmm. And I suppose I still have that expectation from what I consider to be powerful documentaries that they move me emotionally. It's not mm-hmm. just that they stimulate me intellectually. It's not just that they convince me of their argument, even though I do like those sorts of films. Mm-hmm. But the ones that I think are what I call powerful are powerful because they, they move me emotionally and, and perhaps make me think quite differently about something than before I went into the film. Um, I still think the films that do that best are are what we call cinema docs or feature documentaries. And at that point, there really weren't many of them out in the cinema. It wasn't, you know, it, it, that's still a relatively recent phenomena. It was Bowling for Columbine that started mm-hmm. that phenomenon in yeah. terms of cinema docs. But the Europeans were doing that. So the French were showing them in the cinemas, the Germans were showing them in the cinemas. And so my European education on that side... Opened me up to a whole world of filmmaking that I I was not familiar with Dutch filmmakers, for instance, or French, you know auteurs, and um, or Chilean filmmakers. So for me, that became a whole internationalization, and then I started attending film festivals like IDFA in Amsterdam. Um, like uh, Visions du réel in Switzerland and um, other ones in Paris, quite a lot of international festivals. And the way I did that um, was I started reviewing documentaries for a magazine called Docs Magazine. So at that point, it was still quite hard to see these films over here in Scotland, um, they weren't really being shown in our cinemas. They weren't really, apart from Storyville on BBC4 or BBC2, two, BBC2 two, then lastly BBC4, they weren't really being shown in our screens. So I started reviewing films. So then they'd send them to me. And then I was able to go with a press pass to festivals as well and sometimes get invitations mm-hmm. to come to festivals and, and review films. So that so I did take that job quite seriously yeah, of watching yeah. a lot of films, but they weren't they weren't really T V, they weren't really on our TV. It, it was mm-hmm. always this sort of notion, I suppose, of international docs. And they, they quite firmly placed that idea in my head that you could tell any story from any part of the world. But as long as there were elements within it that were universal, they could what they call travel, mm. i.e., your film could be seen anywhere in the world by anyone, and they would take something from it. So that's so. I, you know, I that I would say my education came post university, really about film.
0: And When are we in time now? We A Mask of foretold that was uh, debuted at Edinburgh, Edinburgh Film Festival in two thousand and eight. Yeah. Then you followed up with Hidden Gifts. No,
1: I so I I, st- I started a Mask of Foretold Believe it or not, in about two thousand and two, um, and when I say started, it, I started sort of trying to raise money. I started trying to, um, I started making trips out to Mexico, mm-hmm. um, and it, it took probably about five years to make a Massacre for Told All Said. But in between, I made these two other films: um, Women in Black and Hidden Gifts, The Mystery of Angus McPhee, and and learned by by making. Mm-hmm. Um, but massacre Fortal was always a very complicated film to make anyway because it was a story about a community who were um, sympathetic to the Zapatista rebels, but they weren't Zapatistas, who had been attacked by a paramilitary group who weren't the Mexican military but were, were connected to the Mexican military. Um, and it was all, um, you know, clandestine and, and, and hidden. So finding people who would both talk about that and explain that well and getting access to some of those actors like um, the Bishop Samuel Ruiz, who was the the head of the peace talks at that point. Um, There was a guy out there called Andrew Zobri, who was an anthropologist who lived there for absolute years. These people are mostly dead now, I have to say. So I'm really Mm. glad I captured them and caught them at Mm -hmm. that time. But there was really a lot of legwork to find the right contributors and, and build the story. And I still... You know, that was a lot to attempt to make a sort of feature length. It didn't end up so long, but, uh, you know, a long form documentary at that point without having made Mm -hmm. much in terms of documentaries. So my two half hours for television helped me enormously just in terms of storytelling, editing. And I collaborated with an editor called Tygo Sullivan, who now still edits in Ireland, but also directs now as well. And that was really key that the two of us were, you know, finding our sort of... Our way of telling stories together that was, that was a brilliant intense sort of time but, but also um, you know classic indie filmmaking with very little money you know mm-hmm. we were doing it on Final Cut Pro you know in, in bedrooms and you know um, figuring it out in between it, it certainly wasn't I wasn't making any money from, from films at that point at all but I was really driven to tell those stories so as I say whilst it took at least five years to make a massacre foretold I was doing quite a few things in between that were really helping me learn my craft, you know.
0: And it must, it must be quite a feeling. You've been working on something for four years. You've travelled across the Atlantic a lot of times to see it at the Edinburgh Film Festival in front of an audience. It, you know, it must be a real. I don't know, what's the kind of sensation. Is that kind of feeling that's all it's done, or is that a kind of real feeling of joy? And then you maybe get the audience reaction from it. it you know it must be incredibly because if if you write a, an academic journal and it, you know it's really I'm sure, um, you know it's has a lot of great information but it goes out and you maybe don't get that kind of feedback and, and that sort of thing or that sort of moment of seeing it there that must be quite a moment for 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 someone like yourself
1: yeah i mean it's what's brilliant about festivals and and um, even cinema q a's so television's still fantastic for reaching huge huge audiences but you never know what anyone really thinks. I mean, mm-hmm. these days with social media, I suppose you get some idea, but still, you don't get the reaction. Yeah. And festivals are, you know, they're really important, I think, in the whole kind of media ecology for providing that platform where you meet your audience for the mm-hmm. first time. I mean, for me at that point, I mean, this is worth saying as well, there weren't many Scottish filmmakers who I think prior to me, Edinburgh that year, I don't think there'd be another Scottish documentary filmmaker who'd had a film on for about seven or eight years. Hey. So it wasn't something that was happening regularly. That landscape has changed considerably, in large part thanks to the Scottish Documentary Institute. But that was quite a big deal to be selected for that festival. Um, and
0: uh, did that make it harder for you? you the fact there was no president there, or no sort of culture or industry, or. Well, we,
1: i i sort of suppose consider myself to be part of the movement to try and create that with mm-hmm. Noé Mendel at, at at Edinburgh, who you know is absolutely the instigator, and now Sonia and Ricci, mm-hmm. um, you know, and Emma Davy, and there's other sort of filmmakers, um, you know, who who've you know gone on to make things, or we're already making things, but we're trying to create this kind of sort of culture. So I felt, you know i I was um just happened to be one of them that sort of broken through a wee bit and perhaps a wee bit earlier than some people might have anticipated but um i mean mo- as most people probably sort of say most filmmakers your your premiere of a film isn't necessarily terribly enjoyable <laughs> because you're so anxious about how people are going to receive it and and you know you don't sit there sort of. Taking it in with a big sort of smile on your face, you're you're more sort of nervous that people will walk out or start talking <laughs> in it or whatever you know. Yeah. Um But what's what was great for me was at the end of it. I remember standing in the bar at the sort of film house, and uh, people just started coming up to me, and there was a line that formed of people who came up, and they just wanted to shake my hand and say a few things, nice. and and people were really moved. And that, that was massively affirming. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I and mean, that, that was like, okay, so it you know, it yeah. it worked, it did its job. These yeah, were yeah. people who knew nothing about Mexico, knew nothing about the Zapatistas, who now did mm-hmm. and also um appeared to really care about mm-hmm. the people over there. Um and th- and that's what the film set out to do. And I mean we had a mini campaign on the back of it as well. The president who <laughs> who was in power at that time, Ernesto Zedillo, who ultimately was responsible for the massacre because he had been behind the the plan to create paramilitary groups who then attacked this, this poor community. He was then a professor at the University of Yale in globalisation, and we arranged for the film to screen. We got the Law Department and the Hispanic Studies Department to host the screening in Yale, and with the students, they started a campaign to get him to be sacked or to resign from Yale. And... That was a kind of brilliant thing as well. We basically brought it to his place of work yeah, yeah, yeah. and accused him, you know, of being responsible for the massacre. And um, and then the other thing that was gratifying was taking it back to Mexico itself, um, to both the community. Uh, we did an incredible screening for the 10th anniversary of the massacre in the community itself, where they where there were prayers before the screening, mm. and there was. There was dancing. They have a very different uh, relationship with the dead in Mexico. It might seem bizarre to us sometimes where they celebrate the dead. They don't celebrate the massacre, but they they celebrate um, those who have passed. Um, But the big one was uh, the Morelia Film Festival. So we, we are Mexican premiers at the Morelia Film Festival. And we got on the front page of the newspaper, La Jornada, I managed to bring up some of the indigenous representatives from the community. They were part of the Q and A. Our Q and A was on ten o'clock news. It was filmed by two news crews. It became a story mm-hmm. again. Yeah, you know, it happened ten years before, but it become a become a sto- big story. Well, less than ten years before, and um, and so that too was sort of like the power of film, mm-hmm. and also the power of being. An outsider as well. I'd, I'd faced quite a lot of criticism in the press for being the Scottish guy who'd come to Mexico to make a story about something mm-hmm. that happened in their country. But then I was able to turn around and say, "Well, I've got a PhD in this. Yeah. You know, I've published a book and four articles, and I spent five years making this. You know, and that mm-hmm. that made it quite convincing. And so that gave me that gave me a platform that mm-hmm. otherwise wouldn't have happened." Um, and And it definitely helped the community it gave them a platform as well
0: mm-hmm. so we're at, that's so the premier that was 2008. Where are you in terms of your career as as you know your academic career uh, where, where are you working at that moment is that your, or is that your job so to speak in the very commons
1: well the big, the big sort of um, move for me in some ways was when I was a lecturer at Glasgow University, they said quite clearly that they wouldn't accept the filmmaking as research. And then Glasgow School of Art were far more open to that idea, mm-hmm. makes sense, in art school. And then the University of Edinburgh said they would accept it as yeah. research, as practice-based research. And, and as I said, I started setting up a degree at that point. So I, mm-hmm. I was actually at Edinburgh. I went to Edinburgh in April 2006. So they um, they accepted it as research. So there was no conflict there, which, w- which was great. And, and, you know, quite um, sort of... Progressive, really, for an old mm-hmm. university to yeah. accept that. Who are mainly about texts and and writing, um, and then out the back of that, I, um, you know, being the only sort of Scottish. I think I was the only Scottish filmmaker at um, the Edinburgh Film Festival that year with the feature, certainly with the feature talk. Mm-hmm. But I'm trying, to, I'm trying to think of the yeah, certainly with a feature talk. And I remember having a discussion with the festival director. And actually with Alex Salmon, believe it or not, right. as you do, um, about why that was the case and how that could be changed. And I came up with this idea to do... And, he, and I think he sort of asked me a question about was I not interested in human rights in Scotland? And I thought maybe there's a way of, of answering both these questions in the mm. one way. And so I came up with an idea to do this film about um, human rights in Scotland, but with a number of other filmmakers, uh, which latterly became The New Ten Commandments. And with Noe Mendel again, a, a key collaborator here and, you know, instigator of that whole project, we then set about um, pulling together people like Irvin Welsh and Douglas Gordon, Tilda Swinton, Mark Cousins was a big help in that. And um, I quite quickly managed to raise money from the BBC, um, Scottish Screen and the Scottish Arts Council um, and closed the budget pretty quick. And within a year from making that, that first festival screening to the next festival so the festival agreed that they would give us a slot provisional mm-hmm. um, they'd have to see a cut but provisionally they said they would they would launch it if we pulled it off and we set to work and we we and I I directed one of the we call them kind of chapters of this portmanteau as well um, but we set to work you know doing as it was ten you know many productions simultaneously and um, created the new Ten Commandments which went out the following year Um it to a small release in cinemas uh, but screened on on the BBC so that was the next one and that that sort of um had had me in much more of a producery role as well as I directed one but I I also produced you know the other 9 with nui
0: mm-hmm. so and in, te- so in terms of your academic work that that was obviously a, uh that and you worked alongside some people from Edinburgh at that time as well is that right so well, I, I was asked, right.
1: I was still at Edinburgh, at the University of Edinburgh at that point. I suppose for for me, they're all I can fit them all with intellectual questions that still I think hark from my times doing political and cultural theories. So, you know, it becomes a question of how how do you represent human rights in Scotland? Mm-hmm. And the answer to that then becomes well, you know, which rights and then what is the right way? And I didn't think there was one answer to that. So the whole point of having sort of you know ten people do that was that they would all give different as it were answers you know in in different cinematic forms so we have a film that's an animation we have a film that's very observational we have films that are far more essayistic as a matter of fact arguably it was the start of Mark Cousins career doing essayistic films Um, and and that's what we wanted we wanted very distinct forms um, so, so it became so. In that sense, it's, it, it, for me, that there's no distinction in, in practice-based research. It's like, well, okay, here's here's ten answers to that question, and it's about media literacy as much as it is about filmmaking. And and latterly, we we in fact turned um, the new ten commandments into a resource which we called um, human rights learning through film, human rights in Scotland. And we created workshops around each of the ten individual films for both for schools. Um, and that book, that resource, is now in every school in Scotland. And Creative Scotland gave us funding to do that. And UNICEF, who have a project called Rights Respecting Schools, have accepted it. That if a school uses that resource and does the workshops, they will achieve, that will go towards them getting awards as a right respecting school. So that, I don't think you would bother doing that. Mm -hmm. if you didn't have my kind of academic background where you saw how film could be used as an educational tool and and for me that's like an overriding sort of um motivation with documentary i i still think documentary is one of the most democratic and powerful ways of starting a conversation about a subject i think lecturing at people i think forcing them to read things Mm -hmm. and uh, especially academia with its love of jargon I think can actually prevent people from entering conversations but everyone knows how to watch a film Mm -hmm. and everyone can take has an opinion about a film And, and even if it's they don't like it it's the start of a conversation
0: that's all for this week thanks very much to Nick Higgins for joining me you can find out more about Nick's work by following him on twitter he's at Higgins underscore Nick or by liking the UWS Creative Media Academy page on Facebook you can also follow me on twitter i'm at jamie here thanks again for listening and i'll be back next week with part two of me asking nick higgins how did you end up here